Constance. And I'm Lucinda. And together in our Kids Law podcast, we're going to take a look at how laws affect children as we grow up. So what are we going to look at in this episode, Emma Constance? Well, it would be really interesting to hear more about court hearings that involve juries and how the judges manage cases. Serious criminal cases, for example, murder, rape or robbery, are heard in the Crown Court. They also deal with cases passed from magistrates' courts for trial, sentencing and appeals from magistrates' courts. A Crown Court normally has a jury. They hear all the evidence in the trial and decide whether the defendant is guilty or not. The court also has a judge who presides over proceedings and hands down the sentence if a guilty verdict is given. Let's speak to Her Honour Judge Deborah Taylor, the resident judge at Southwark Crown Court, which is the fourth largest in the country, and also a recorder at Westminster. She also sits in the Court of Appeal Criminal Division and in the High Court Queen's Bench Division and Administrative Court. She is the Treasurer of the Inner Temple and was a Judicial Appointments Commissioner from 2011 to 2013. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us on our Kids Law podcast. We are so pleased to have you here. What is it like being a judge in the Crown Court, such as Southwark, which hears so many serious criminal cases? Well, first of all, Alma, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to you today. In short, it's very busy indeed. The Crown Courts generally unlike the magistrates' court, are a single entity across the country. And there are about 77 court centres across England and Wales. Southwark Crown Court opened in 1983, and it contains 15 courtrooms, and that makes it the fourth largest court centre in the country. However, for the last year, we've also had an additional court, which you may have heard about, a Nightingale Court, And that's an extra three courts deal with additional work during the pandemic. And it handles uh, some of London's most serious financial crime and corruption uh, cases. And we also deal with uh, requests from foreign countries to carry out investigations for their cases in the UK and requests from the UK to carry out investigations in other countries, mainly to do with financial uh, cases. So that's roughly what we do. These are very long and complicated trials. In many Crown Courts, trials only last two days, three days, and maybe a week. But our cases generally last up to three months. And we have juries who sit on those cases throughout those, that time. The jury system is a very long-standing system in the United Kingdom. And it was a way originally of people being judged by their peers, their neighbours. But now, of course, it's a much wider catchment area for any Crown Court. But the juries uh, that we see in London are very diverse indeed and come from very different backgrounds. And they all bring their own experience and their own history into the jury room in judging their fellow citizens in London, which is a very uh, international city. What I've noticed, and particularly in the long cases that we do, is how hard juries work together. Once they start a long case, you can see as the judge, as they retire and they come back um, every day, and the questions that they ask as they listen to the evidence over months. 
uh, is how they're listening, how they're working together, and how they come to verdicts at the end. These days, juries get far more help in coming to their verdicts. Judges not only give them legal directions orally uh, in their summing up, but they also get written directions and what are called routes to verdict, which is a, a series of questions that they should ask themselves in coming to their decisions. But overall, it's quite clear that they are well able to uh, weigh up the evidence, to consider the facts and apply the law that the judge gives them and come to verdict. It may be that in some cases, a judge as an individual might not come to the same uh, decision. But it's very, very rare as a judge that the jury come to a decision that you simply can't understand why they have come to it. They're a very reliable barometer of public uh, opinion uh, and the way that the public will look at offences. What is the procedure of a case that is heard in the Crown Court? Well, when somebody walks into a Crown Court, the layout is the same in just about every court in the country. When you walk in the back of the court as a member of the public, what you'll see in front of you is a dock in which the defendant uh, stands. You see a jury box, which has 12 jurors in it. You see the judge, who is right at the front of the court, who sits uh, there on the, on the bench, as it's called. And in front of the judge, there'll be a clerk of the court who reads out the uh, charges and an usher who helps people come in and out of court. We also have a witness box where the witnesses give their evidence. And sometimes they have someone who is able to assist them, particularly if they're a young person or somebody under a disability, or an interpreter if they're not a natural English speaker. So that's the layout of the court. The first thing that happens when the court starts is that the jury are sworn in and they all take an oath to come to verdicts on the evidence. And then they're sworn in and they sit down. The charges are read. They're told what the defendant is alleged to have done. And then the prosecution barrister will stand up and open a case and what they do when they open the case is set out what the prosecution's case is about with some of the evidence that's going to be heard and why the prosecution say that the defendant is guilty. The prosecution then call their evidence, so that can be witnesses, or some of the evidence can be uh, video, CCTV, or it can be read statements if it's agreed, and sometimes recordings of what's happened, or sometimes Snapchat, WhatsApp. And so then the prosecution finishes their case and then the defendant has the right to give evidence if he chooses to do so or she chooses to do so, but doesn't have to do so. But if the defendant gives evidence, then he gives his evidence and calls his witnesses in the same way. And at the end of the evidence, the judge will sum up the case. And then the barristers give their closing speeches as to the prosecution, why the defendant should be found guilty, and the defence as to why uh, the jury should acquit him. And then the judge summarises the evidence, then sends the jury out to come to their verdicts, which they do um, in their room together, all 12 of them. So that's a short outline of what happens in a trial. What are the sentences that can be given in the Crown Court? 
Well, there are really a, a large number of sentences. I think probably most people would have thought that uh, prison is the only sentence that could be, can be given, but it's not. Uh, there are many different uh, sentences which are available. So, for example, for lesser offences, you can give a community order, which is an order which requires the defendant to do something in the uh, community. It can be unpaid work. But you can also impose an order which involves a curfew, which means that he's not allowed out uh, for certain uh, periods or during the day. You can impose an order which makes a defendant attend for mental health um, assessments or treatment. Those are all sent part of a sentence, which is a community sentence designed to assist the defendant back into society. As far as imprisonment is concerned, that is for serious offences. And these there are sentencing guidelines as to the sentences which judges can uh, impose in relation to particular offences. And those are set out and the factors that you take into account, for example, seriousness, who was involved, uh, where it happened, the defendant's previous convictions, all can be taken into account in deciding what sentence a judge imposes and how long for example, a custodial sentence would be. When cases involve children, either as witnesses, victims or defendants, what happens in terms of them giving evidence? Well, these days, I think courts are much better at uh, making children feel at home in the courts. Very often, when children give evidence, they can give evidence which is pre-recorded so that they don't actually have to come to court in the first Um, instance. It's done in a more relaxed environment for them. And if they do come to court uh, to give evidence, they can give evidence from a room which is uh, separate and therefore appear by video link into the court, or they can appear behind screens if they feel more comfortable in giving their evidence in that way. Very often, if uh, it makes the child witness feel more comfortable, the judge will take their wigs off, wig off and this counsel also, and everything will be on a far more relaxed basis. If it's a defendant, we have special courts, youth courts, for young uh, offenders, which are in the magistrate's courts, unless the young offender is brought to the Crown Court with an adult, so if they commit, are said to have committed an offence together. And again, those are courts which are really tailored to making the um, experience far less intimidating for children. If someone is found guilty, what happens to them? Well, that depends on partly on what the offence is, but they will be sentenced uh, by the judge. What usually happens at the end of a trial is that they're not sentenced immediately because the defence want to gather together information about uh, them so that the court is best placed to impose a sentence which from the defence point of view is as lenient as possible. So defendants often want to get uh, references from employers saying all the good things about them and their families and those who know them, their involvement in charities or uh, in their church And also, perhaps in some circumstances, may want to get a psychiatric report if it's said that there is some background mental disability which leads to the court imposing a particular type of sentence. So when all of that information is got together, their counsel will stand up and do what's called a plea in mitigation, in which they set out all the 
reasons why the court should impose a, a, as low a sentence as possible and a particular type of sentence. Is there a difference in terms of punishments for children? Yes, I think that these days there's far more emphasis on looking at the way that children develop. And in fact, there's been far more recognition that teenagers and even people right into their very early 20s are still developing and would behave in a different way from fully formed adults. And particularly, for example, in the case of young people who are together, who do things together in a gang or in a group, which they would never do on their own. So there's quite a lot of research going into that. So in relation to children, first of all, there's a number of sentences which are only available to children at particular ages. And so for young offenders, there are referral orders, which mean that they get some assistance in trying to get back into the community. It's like a bit like probation for young people. When it's a more serious sentence, there can be a detention and training order which can be given to someone who's between the ages of of 12 and and 17. Those can last between four months and two years. And they are partly training as well as detention. So there is still an emphasis on trying to rehabilitate and to help the young offender back into society. But for very violent um, or sexual crimes, young people can get sentences which involve them being an extended sentence, which does move into adult custody if if necessary, once they reach the age of uh, 21. Very, very rarely you get uh, children who commit the most serious crimes, such as murder. If it's a child, there's a special sentence which um, enables the court to detain the child, which enables the um, young offender to be in custody for as long as is uh, really necessary. Of course, there are other kinds of community sentences, youth rehabilitation orders. What happens very often with a first offence for a young person is that they, they receive a caution and it's really trying to persuade them to not to do it again. Can you tell us why the robing rooms at Southwark Crown Court became a controversial topic? Well, I didn't think it was going to be controversial until I read about it in the press. And indeed, some American friends pointed out that it was in the financial press, Bloomberg. But when I took over as resident judge in um, 2017, I found out that there were three robing rooms in Southwark. One was a very large robing room, which had all the facilities in it. Um, And then there were two rather tiny robing rooms at more opposite ends of the corridor. And the large robing room was only for men. And the two small robing rooms were women's robing rooms. And the reasons um, why I changed the robing rooms were that there aren't, or there certainly weren't in 2017, so many women in fraud. It's uh, an area where there are far more male barristers than women barristers. It seemed to me that it was unfair that the women should be excluded from a lot of the conversations that take place before the case gets into court, uh, and also excluded from the best facilities. So tables, chairs, places to put their robes. And so to try and make things fairer and also to encourage uh, equality amongst the barristers. And so I decided to make the very large room unisex because, in fact, when people are getting changed, really what they're doing is they're putting on a robe over their clothes. So there's no 
problem about getting change together. For those who did want a bit of privacy, I allocated one of the tiny robing rooms for the women and one of the tiny robing rooms for the men so that those who did want a little quiet time could go into those. Can you tell us about the High Sheriff's Award and why we have this ceremony? Well, this is a very interesting and long-established way of rewarding citizens in London for stepping in and being very brave and acting as good citizens in relation to crime. Very often in the course of a trial, the judge will hear of a witness or some, somebody who's been a bystander who has come across some crime and has done something which is incredibly brave. So, for example, I had one case in which a 17-year-old a boy on his way back from a party had come across the aftermath of a failed drugs deal. And there was a man sitting there who was very, very seriously injured. And instead of walking by, he stopped and he rang up the emergency services. And whilst they were arriving, he was receiving instructions on giving emergency treatment to this man, which really saved his life in the end. And I thought it was quite remarkable that a 17-year-old who could have just left had actually stayed and really helped somebody, even though that person themselves might have been involved in crime. So that's the sort of example. And the High Sheriff of Greater London has an awards ceremony every year. And sometimes that's in the Supreme Court, and sometimes it's been at Southwark or another Crown Court. And it's a very lovely ceremony for the recipients and their families, because what the judge does at the end of the trial is set out what they've done, which deserves the award, recommends them for the award, and then they're given a sum of money and also a commemorative scroll that they can keep. And that's presented in front of their families and friends. And it really shows how much they are admired and thanked by the community. Lucinda described you in the introduction as a treasurer of the inner temple. Can you please explain what that means and what you do in that role? Well, each barrister joins one of four inns of court, and I uh, joined in 1983 when I became a barrister. What the um, inner temple does is to train students and pupils and young barristers and even established barristers in the law. It also has facilities for lectures and for events. So there are dinners. For example, this year, it's a very, very important year. It's the 100th anniversary of the first woman to be called to the bar. And she's a member of Inner Temple. And her name was Dr. Ivy Williams. We're celebrating with a lecture and a dinner later in the year. But the main purpose really is education. And every year, the Inns of Court provides scholarships and support for any students coming into the law. The Inner Temple provides about £1.8 million a year to um, people wanting to train as barristers. Most of that is means tested. So uh, the barriers to becoming a barrister are brought down by funding from the Inns. Being treasurer is like being the chair of the board of trustees in a company or in a charity. So I chair committees, but I also act as a representative of the inn and an ambassador, really trying to spread the ideas of the rule of law through the legal world, as well as welcoming students and running student events. So that's my role this year. 
You were also a Judicial Appointments Commissioner. Can you tell us more about that role and what you think are the most important qualities required to be a judge? Well, the Judicial Appointments Commission was set up to try and make the appointment of judges more transparent and more fair, and also to try and increase the diversity in the judiciary, which is very important because as judges, we need to represent the society we work in, the people who we represent and who come before us in the courts. And one of the things that I tried to do and encourage was for those members of the um, commission who were not lawyers to come and visit courts and actually sit in court and see trials and see what barristers and judges do, which I do think helped them in visualising uh, the people who they were impo- appointing. As far as the qualities for a judge, I think fairness, patience, and an ability to control a courtroom. You don't need to shout. You just need to be able to ensure that everybody feels that you're in control. To deal with the unexpected, which happens very frequently in court. And to make sure that everybody who's been into your courtroom feels that they have had a fair um, trial and a fair opportunity to put forward their case. You also need to have stamina because it's quite hard work. There's a lot of reading, a lot of studying involved, a lot of judgment writing. And so what we do in court is only part of what judges do. There's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. I have a question I ask all of our guests. What were you like at 10 and what did you imagine you would go on to be as an adult? Well, I think that when I was 10, I was really quite a rebellious 10-year-old. At school, I didn't think I would obey most rules. I was always asking questions about why rules were in place. Um, And I was always arguing. And I was a bit of a bookworm as well. I enjoyed reading a lot. Um, So I think at that stage, I hadn't decided what I wanted to do. I was quite interested in languages. And in fact, I went on to do all language A-levels, French, English and German. Um, And I thought perhaps I might be an interpreter at one stage. But I changed my mind when I studied law at university and decided to be a barrister. um, I think my 10-year-old self, my little rebellious self, I think, We was in training to be a barrister, always asking questions, questioning why rules were in place uh, and whether we should obey them or not. Thank you so much, Deborah, for telling us about your work as a judge and your experiences in other roles. Do you have any final advice for children who want to understand more about how courts work and the legal system generally? Well, I know that there are charities and uh, institutions who do mock trials and they do them in schools. So if you get an opportunity of either doing that with another organisation or setting one up in your own school, I would really recommend that. Very recently, a barrister approached me and and asked me if I would go to a school and judge a, a mock trial. But what I said to him is, why don't you bring your mock trial to my court? And then the children who are involved in it can see what a courtroom looks like and actually do their mock trial in a real courtroom. So we're organising that for May of this year. So I'd recommend you get um, a going on setting up your mock trial. Well, Alma, what do you think about what Deborah told us? 
Well, it is very important to remember that in the courtroom there are 12 jurors, a judge is at the front and a clerk reads out the charges. Sentences for guilty verdicts are not just being sent to prison, but also community-based, which are aimed to rehabilitate offenders. It is very interesting that the robing room issue was a way to promote equality for women barristers by allowing them to be involved in discussions. I was interested to hear about her ideas about the required qualities to be a judge and those were not only to be fair and patient, but also to make sure that everyone taking part in the court process considers it to have been fair too. In our podcast, we've been exploring how laws work and affect young people. All of these things help children understand their rights and responsibilities so that they can make informed decisions, not only about their lives, but things like voting for MPs who make the laws and understanding how the legal justice system works. It's also important that children know that they should be kept safe and that adults must care for them. Remember, if you have any worries, talk to an adult you trust and tell them how you feel. This includes your teachers at school who are there to look after you too. So tell them that you need to talk to them. You can find out more information on Kids Law Info website. Keep your questions coming in. Please subscribe, rate and share the podcast with your friends. See you soon in the next episode. Bye. Bye.